Hello and welcome to season two of the Age Lab podcast by the Harvard Law Entrepreneurship Project. My name is Ben Ho. I'm a three-year-old Harvard Law School and I'm your host. You're joining us in the final episode of season two. We'd like to give a big shout out to our firm sponsors, Orc, Cooley, and Fenwick and West for making this season possible. On today's episode, we speak to Jonah Perlin, the Georgetown Law Professor and the host of the How I Lawyer podcast. We learn about Jonah's story, his experiences running this podcast, and the major lessons learned from interviewing over 130 lawyers. We have such a rich recording ahead, and whether or not you're a law student, a junior associate, or a lawyer well into the heart of your career, this episode is definitely for you. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a few seconds to give us a five-star rating on your favorite podcast app and subscribe to stay up to date for the latest episodes. All right, let's get started. Hi, Jonah. Welcome to the HLEP Podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Ben. I'm really excited to be here. Well, Jonah, you're usually the one hosting a podcast, but today you're a guest on ours. So how does it feel like to be on the other side being asked the questions instead? It's so funny because when I started this, right, when you're new at something, you've never done it before. And I would get this rush and this thrill of adrenaline from asking questions. Then after you do it, you know, a, a hundred plus times, that adrenaline starts lowering a little bit. Mm. And more recently, I've been on a couple of podcasts and the adrenaline is completely back to 10 out of 10 or 100 out of 100 um, because it is such a different experience asking questions and being the one uh, who's getting asked questions. At the same time, as you know, Ben, because I'm a big fan of your show, the great part about it is it's a conversation, right? Like I was a former big law litigator and I used to take depositions where I'd have to ask somebody questions for seven hours and they would have no choice but to answer them on the record. And this is just such a better, exciting, uh, friendly medium of having a conversation. So I'm just grateful that you asked me to be here. That's awesome. I love the energy. So, you know, I'm sure many of us already know who you are, but can you start by telling us about yourself and what you do? For sure. So, uh, yeah. So as Ben said, my name is Jonah Perlin. I am a legal practice professor at Georgetown Law School, uh, my alma mater. Uh, Legal practice is what we at Georgetown call legal research and writing. Uh, In some other schools, it's called fundamentals of lawyering. Essentially, it's the practice-based class um, with a real focus on legal communication, or at least that's how I think about it. Um, And so, yeah, so I'm a a Georgetown Law graduate. I was a teaching assistant in the program, uh, and then I practiced for a few years. I'm sure we'll talk about that. And uh, I joined the faculty full-time that just finished my fifth year teaching. In addition to that, where I'm teaching 1Ls and advanced legal writing students, uh, I have a podcast, How I Lawyer, uh, as we sort of mentioned earlier, uh, which I started about two and a half years ago. And that's sort of my uh, related to my job, but also sort of a side hustle. Again, something we can (laughs) talk about. Um, So that's my professional life. Uh, You know, I always like to, I'm a big believer that we are more than just our professional life. So my personal life at a very high level, I'm a dad. I have two young girls who are almost six and almost eight. Uh, and I live with my wife, who's also a lawyer here in, in Washington, D.C. Uh, and I grew up just just about 25 minutes away from where I'm sitting talking to you now. So that's me in a nutshell. That's great, Jonah. So let's actually go through all the major checkpoints from law school to big law and then to teaching. So go. let's go back to law school. What were you like in law school? Yeah, it's a great question. So I went to law school uh, after two years, uh, two years after I graduated from undergrad in my first year, I worked at a, uh, progressive Jewish nonprofit doing advocacy work. And I really loved mm-hmm. that work. Um, my second year after I graduated, I thought I might actually apply to law school for that cycle and a combination of, uh, a dream that I had of maybe going and getting a PhD and actually never going to law school 
got in the way of that. And also the fact that I needed to take the LSAT a second time got in the way of that. Um, and so ultimately I was lucky enough to do a year long master's at the university of Chicago in religious studies, mm. which is what I had studied in undergrad and what I thought I was, you know, thinking about studying beyond. And so I got to Georgetown law having experienced what it was like to be out in the world and have a job uh, in, again, DC, my, my hometown. And I had experienced being in a very rigorous academic program. And what mm. I learned in those two years was, A, I really didn't want to go get a PhD, despite the fact that I learned a lot and I really enjoyed my time at the University of Chicago. Um, and I thought no matter what I wanted to do, I did need to get a graduate degree. Mm. And so that's, that was where I was when I landed at Georgetown Law uh, in the fall of 2009. As a law student, I thought of myself very much as, well, I've already, you know, I've already left undergrad. I'm like an adult already. I didn't <laughs> live in the dorm. Like Georgetown Law has a dorm. I didn't live in the dorm. I had a pretty nice group of friends. Um, I had just started seeing my then girlfriend, who is my now wife, who was in law school in Boston uh, at a different school down the street from yours. And so I thought I was going to treat it just like a job, like nine mm. to five, show up to school, um, do my reading and go home and have my life. And so I didn't join very many organizations. I didn't go to a lot of extra events. I really treated it like a job, mm. at least in my first year. And in some ways that worked really well for me, right? I found the first year of law school to be both very, very interesting um, and also very fulfilling personally. And I tried to stay away to the extent possible with the sort of the craziness that goes along mm. with being a 1L. And I tried to have that balance and having a community outside of law school really helped me provide that balance. Th at the same time, and this probably comes to no, as no surprise to anybody who's heard me speak on my podcast, I'm a big process person. I care deeply about process. I think process is what keeps perfectionists like myself um, sort of grounded and comfortable because at the end of the day, if the goal is always doing something perfect, that's an unachievable goal. And it sets, sets you up for really for failure. Whereas if you have a process and your goal at the end of the day is, did I fulfill my process? That is a much healthier way of going about doing things. So I treated law school very much as a process. I would, you know, read for class, go to class. And my big thing was, and I learned this from people who had you know, gone to law school before me was making sure that I also uh, went through my notes after class. And that actually is what I left a lot of time in the afternoons and evenings to do. And that was kind of how I lived my first year life. Quickly fast forward to my second year of law school. Uh, I start, I become a TA for the writing class. I join the Georgetown Law Journal. I start making some friends from those activities. And I think I had a much more well-rounded law school experience starting in my second year. Um, almost all of my friends who are at my wedding from law school are people I met on the articles committee of the Georgetown Law Journal. Mm. So for anybody who's listening to this and finishing their 1L year and feeling like maybe I haven't found my group yet, you will. You have a future opportunities. Um, but I treated it very much like a job. That's awesome. So much to unpack there. But since you talked about all the anxieties of 1L, yeah. let me ask you this, right? So how closely does what you do today compare to what you thought you were going to do as a 1L? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, the answer is, uh, it's exactly what I wanted to do and nothing at all like I wanted to do. And, okay. and the way I'd unpack that is to say, I didn't know what I wanted to do when I went to law school. Um, instead, I knew the skills that I had and the skills that I liked developing. I, you know, One of the things I learned in my time in Chicago was how to write on a deadline and how to communicate to a particular audience in a particular way. And I really love that. Um, 
you know, I grew up, my, my mom is a rabbi, uh, and my dad spent most of my early life, um, working in finance, uh, all around the world. And what I learned from them was being able to sort of see them help other people be the best version of themselves. And I I thought maybe law might let me do that, but I mm. didn't have the sophistication um, and, you know, I, I, I knew some lawyers, I, I have lawyers sort of further up in my family lineage, but I really didn't have the sophistication to know all of the things I could do. Um, and so that's why I say what I do now, I had no idea what I wanted to do. For example, I went to Georgetown in part because it has such a wonderful international law program. I ended up taking not a single international law class once I got there, just because I found other interests organically during my time. At the same time, I took first year, what was then called legal research and writing with professor, uh, Kristen Tashoni, who is to this day, one of my mentors. And that was the moment where I looked up and I said, you know, I wanted to be, go get a PhD potentially so I could teach, mm. but I also really love the process of writing and watching her teach. I thought in that moment, I was like, man, she has a really cool job. And I sort of stopped myself in that moment. Cause there's a one L and I have students now come to me and say like, I want to be a law professor. I'm like, get through law school first, then decide if this is actually what you want to be. But I did have sort of that twinkle in my eye for that class. And then especially when I got to be a uh, law fellow, a teaching assistant for that class, I really loved it. Um, mm -hmm. I don't think I ever thought I would actually be where I am today, but the idea, the seed, the spark was there. Oh, that is so interesting because I can say that my experience in legal research writing, which is what we call it here, was not that. It made me think I don't ever want to be a litiga litigator. Yeah. And you're not the only one. And, and that's not our job, right? Our job is not to make everybody want to do what we want to do. Mm. Our job is to give everybody uh, an introduction to the basic skills of how American lawyers communicate with one another. And for some people, that is the end of that exercise. Like if they can get that introduction, then we've succeeded. Um, and for others who find the love of, of legal writing, there's plenty of ways to make that a huge part of your career. I tell my students on the first day of class, whether they like it or not, becoming a lawyer is in some ways becoming a professional writer. And there are ways to sort of lower the amount of writing you have to do or increase the amount of writing you do, but it's hard to do our job uh, without this, without the written and spoken word. And so that's why I think what we do is so important and, and why I'm really dedicated to it as, as a profession. And, and if I'm being honest, a vocation as I think about it. That's awesome. But before you went to teach, you were also, you had a stint in big law. So can you tell us about that time and what did you do? And what were some of the expectations for big law? Did it measure up, you know, in law school? Yeah. So I didn't know anything about big law. I'm being hundred percent honest. I knew nothing about big law when I applied. Um, I was lucky to do pretty well my first year. And as anyone who's gone through this process knows, you sort of get tracked, especially at a school like Georgetown. I'm sure it's similar to school like Harvard. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, some people have a problem with that. I actually don't necessarily have a problem with that. I just think that's the way it, it goes around. Mm -hmm. Um, and ultimately, you know, people would say, well, what are you going to do next summer? And I worked for a judge after my first summer, which was a really eye-opening experience. I love that experience. Um, ironically enough, I actually became really close with the clerk who was my sort of uh, boss at the time is now in the career services offices at Georgetown and has become a dear wow. friend. Um, and who I've had on the podcast, actually, on my podcast. So uh, I learned a lot in that summer. And I said, you know what, let's try this big law thing out, or at least the interview process. And people said, what do you want to do? 
And I think I gave the answer, like, I want to argue at the Supreme Court, because frankly, that's <laughs> all I, I think that's all I really knew uh, after my first year of law school. In retrospect, that's kind of a hysterical answer. And if you're listening and you're going to do your OCI interview soon, it's not actually the answer I'd recommend. And even if it's true, I, I think a more nuanced answer might, might serve you better. <laughs> um, but... Yeah. So I, I interviewed at a bunch of firms. I was lucky enough to get hired as a summer associate at Williams and Connolly here in Washington, Wow! Um, which is just, it's a fantastic firm. It's a unique firm in today's legal market in the sense that it's still one office. Um, it is very much a firm that believes in training its associates uh, from day one and giving responsibility from day one. Um, and frankly, people go to Williams and Connolly for, for the hardest cases. And as a young lawyer who didn't really know what I wanted to do, but knew the skills that A, I was good at, but also the skills that I wanted to develop, it was a fantastic place to go. Um, remember also, this is the summer of 2010 was when I started there. So we're we're really trailing off the, the great financial crisis. Um, at that point, you had big law firms that were deferring students, that were laying off, law, uh, laying off lawyers and staff. Uh, it actually reminds uh, me a little bit of what's going on in today's market. I've seen a couple yeah. of these cycles now in my legal career. Um, so my summer class at Williams & Connolly was only 25 students, which is incredibly small by today's standards. Um, I had a great summer. I decided to come back after I graduated. We can talk about my clerkships if mm -hmm. you want, but I was there for a year. Um, and you know, you asked a little bit about my, like what it was like and whether it met my expectations. Mm -hmm. I don't think I had expectations. Um, I do think the biggest surprise was how little law I was doing in the sense that as a first year lawyer, I wasn't writing briefs. I wasn't arguing cases. But I was doing really important work for my cases in terms of doing fact development. I was doing really important work for my cases, preparing witnesses and meeting with witnesses and sitting in and getting experience, listening to uh, depositions and arguments. And in the moment, I thought, well, I just went to law school for three years and sat for the bar. Like, ask me some legal questions. And you know, looking back now, I realized that A, I wasn't ready to do that because I hadn't yet had that experience of what it was like to see a big civil case from start to finish. Hmm. But I also, my value add was I had the time and the bandwidth and the curiosity and the, the youth, frankly, <laughs> to really dig deep on facts and become an expert on the facts of my case and work with people with a lot more experience who could teach me how to turn those facts into legal theories and legal strategies. And so I think that was the part that I didn't in the moment realize how important it was, but has been an absolute game changer to how I think about what it means to be a litigator. Oh, wow. okay. That I think that's so interesting. So you might be given assignments and tasks as a young lawyer that you might think, oh, why am I would I have to do this? But collectively it adds up, right? A hundred percent, a hundred percent. And, you know, I think you need to go in with a dose of humility. I think mm. when you get hired by a big law firm, and frankly, that comes with a big paycheck or a big, certainly a bigger paycheck than I ever, not only that I had ever seen, but I ever thought I'd ever see, you sort of get this like air of importance. Like I should mm. be the one handling this and reality, you know, that's the one thing, one thing that I think works pretty well about the way good big law training um, happens, and frankly, I got good big law training, is you have to start with understanding the facts of a case and issue spotting and understanding an industry. And then you get to watch other people and help them in small ways, in small pieces. And then the next time you get a bigger chunk. And then the next time you get a slightly bigger chunk than that.
And one of my, uh, someone I worked with in my later years at Williams and Connolly, who's a, a dear friend and mentor, uh, Nick Boyle taught me was the best big law mentors are the ones who say, you've never done this task before. Therefore, I want you to do it. If you're working for somebody who says you haven't done this task before, therefore you can't do it, or we're going to find somebody who's already done it, find a different mentor because mm -hmm. you have to prove yourself that you're ready for that big next step, right? To try something new. And you have to be in an environment that lets you try something new, but not every day, right? It wow. really does stack. That is so interesting. And, and you're sharing such great perspective here for, for many of us who are just about to enter, I guess, the profession full-time when we're graduating. So I, I think it sets up really well for your discussion about the How I Lawyer podcast. So can we go there? Like, so Sure, please. Let's start from the beginning. Like, What was your inspiration for your podcast and why did you do it? So I was not a huge podcast consumer when I started. I'd be curious uh, if you were, Ben, when you started your <laughs> podcast. But um, you know, just to put you in my mindset briefly, we're talking, it's November, December, 2020. Um, we've just gone through an incredibly challenging eight or nine months, um, you know, with the, with the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, I had two very young daughters at the time. Uh, I had a, a four-year-old and a two-year-old. I was also uh, working a ton with my students remotely. Mm. Uh, and we were, we were frankly a little bit burned out after nine months of doing it. I mean, I won't, I will never forget looking at my wife, who's also a lawyer and saying, which shift do you want of work six to noon or noon to six? Because the other shift was the kid shift. And that was a challenging moment. Several months into that, um, I was looking for a creative outlet for myself, frankly. I took a class on like how to start a YouTube channel. Thank God I didn't start a YouTube channel, <laughs> uh, at least then. I don't know. Some people have asked me to start one now, but I'm, I'm going to slow play that. Um, you know, I thought maybe I would find something outside of law, like whether that was creative writing or, or getting into photography. I just needed some creative outlet. At the same time, I was meeting with students on Zoom. Um, this is my class of students uh, who are 1Ls who are graduating, uh, right, as basically today and tomorrow as we're doing this interview. And I was getting a lot of questions from students about like, how do I learn about what a lawyer does, especially when I can't leave my parents' basement? Yeah. And I had this realization that I could connect those two pieces of my life, the professional career development part of my life and the need for a creative outlet. And the third piece of it was I really wanted to amplify the stories of others. Mm. And once I had those three things in my mind, I said, like many people during the pandemic, right, there was a huge boom in starting podcasts. I said, well, I'll start a podcast and see what happens. Um, and so that's the idea for the podcast. I saw it as instead of law students and junior lawyers having coffee with uh, practitioners, what if I essentially had coffee with them for one hour ask the questions that I would want my students to ask if they were doing yes. that coffee and put it out in the world for free asynchronously and at scale and build a library week to week. And that was the, that was the, the genesis of the podcast. I love it. I think it's just such a great idea. Um, especially because this is a coffee chat that you can hear again and again, right? Yes. Yes. The, the evergreen nature of podcasts is so, so fantastic. And it's why I love what you are doing and other legal podcasters in the space are creating information in a consumable format that anybody can access. And they didn't have to be a lawyer or a law student when I recorded the podcast. Like the library mm. exists in perpetuity 
And so the the dividends of that time keep paying every single day, every single week, every single month, every single year. Oh, yes. Uh, just l- let me just say, though, as a listener, I really admire what you're doing because I think it fills a major need, right? We're giving law students multiple perspectives on different paths you can take with a law degree. And perhaps most importantly, it shows us that there are so many ways to succeed because Speaking as a law student, it seems like there aren't many that there aren't many options. It's either you're a litigator or you're a corporate lawyer. Yeah, and, and that's I. You know, we've we've talked a little bit about this when we were talking about this episode, mm-hmm. Ben. But I think it's an important thing to to point out. You know, one of the greatest parts about getting a law degree is you can do anything with it. Mm-hmm. One of the worst parts about getting a law degree is that you can do anything with it. <laughs> and so there's a there's a disconnect right between the potential things that you have been trained or set up to do um, and a knowledge of what those things are. I mean, you know, when I talk to law students in their first week, they don't even know the terms litigation and transactional. And then three weeks in, it's like, well, which one am I going to be? And the reality is those are two paths, but there are lots of paths to be a lawyer. And frankly, there are a lot of paths that are not, you don't necessarily need to have a JD, but having one helps you. And, you know, there are different ways to look at that. Do you want to work for a big firm or a small firm? Do you want to work in-house or at a law firm? Do you want to be do a generalist doing a lot of different things? Or do you want to dig down really deep into a particular niche? Uh, are you going to be more of a strategic advisor? Do you want to work in the public sector or the private sector? There's just so many ways of saying, well, a lawyer can do X. And yeah. the theory behind the podcast was I'm going to try to find people where where that variable X is really different across you know, as many people as I can find and I'm, I'm still doing it. Oh, I love it. I love that it's the name is general enough that you could bring conceivably anyone who's exactly lawyered in some way. Uh, and I think like for me to a big inspiration for what we were doing is what, what were some of the questions I even wish I knew how to ask in OCI, right? And then how do we ask these people so that they can share their insights from the other side? Yeah, I think that's really smart, Ben. And it's something that frankly, I think we don't do a great service to junior lawyers and law students is we tell them go out and find mentors and ask questions, but we don't tell them what questions to ask. And yes. so I hope that our shows are modeling not only the or or not only giving answers, but they're actually modeling the questions that people can go out and find themselves. Um, and the reality is, for some people, the questions will come naturally, right? We all have our own strengths, but for many people, they won't. And that's the other sort of purpose behind my podcast is to create transparency in a way about our profession in a way that makes it uh, more interesting, more diverse, more fulfilling, more successful. And by demystifying as many possible things as we can. And some of those, you know, are explicit. I'm trying to demystify what it means to be a capital markets lawyer, for example. Mm. And some of it is a lot softer in the background. Like I'm trying to demystify what questions you should ask a practitioner to get the answers that you're looking for. Right. And you said too, you wanted to amplify the stories because the people on the other side, they're just people like, like we, we are right now. Right. Absolutely. I mean, and the reality is lawyers typically like telling their story, but very few people ask them. Um, (laughs) and, and I, and look, I'm a fundamental believer and this goes back to my, to my childhood as the son of a rabbi that, you know, people's stories matter and learning people's stories help you adjust and course correct your own story. Yes. And I don't want people to listen to any one of my episodes and say, oh, well, that's how, you know, Jane Smith became a partner at Simpson Thatcher. That's not a real person, but you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, 
I want them to listen to it and say, well, that's how she got there, mm. right? What can I take from that story and this story and my own story to, to get to that same place or a different place as a result? So the more stories you hear, the more direction you can get by triangulating. Oh, that is so wonderful because I think as law student types, we tend to be more risk averse and have to plan out everything. And this gives us the benefit of, 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 of listening to, to many speakers who have come before us and, and gone to where they are now, right? 100%. Great. So Jonah, are there any themes or series that resonate with your audience in particular? I mean, what do you think that suggests if so? Yeah, it's really interesting. Um, you know, as you know, Ben, like podcast analytics are actually not great, um, especially for anybody. And I'm not on any of these platforms, at least yet, of who think about things like, you know, YouTube and TikTok and Instagram, where yeah. you can say like, oh, you had, you know, a thousand people all between the ages of 18 and 19 mm -hmm. who all grew up and like this type of food, watch your, watch your uh, video. Podcasting is very rudimentary in that sense. <laughs> and it's really a, a matter of raw numbers. And so what I have loved to see as my podcast has, has grown in both uh, scope and listenership over the last two and a half years is that no single episode is driving sort of that much more engagement than any other episode. And what I take away from that, and there are, look, there are, you know, top episodes, but we're talking about within 700 listens. I mean, very small numbers of differences between number one and number 112. Mm. And the, what I take from that is that not, I don't expect everybody to listen to every episode. Frankly, I don't expect anybody to listen to every episode, but me mm. and the episodes that resonate with some folks are going to not resonate with others. Yes. And so by building a library where people can, you know, to extend the metaphor a little too far, like take whatever books they want out week to week. I love that. Um, it, it really means that they can all resonate just to different audiences. And so I've been really lucky in that sense. You know, I've also done some creative things. I've tried to do some topical uh, type podcast where I focus on, for example, oral argument uh, skills, where I bring in a panel of folks. And those I think do tend to get the most downloads because they're really, you know, we talked a lot about stories. They're, they're much more tactical and a lot less storytelling. Um, mm. That doesn't mean that I want to give up the storytelling. Frankly, that's the real bread and butter of what I do. And I have a reason for that, that we talked about, but those, those uh, topical uh, episodes have also gotten a lot of interest. So I, I've been thinking about how can I weave more of those in to the sort of library as I'm building over the course of the next couple of years. I love that. I, and I, I love to also ask you about this because you've not done this for, for quite some time. So running a podcast feels a lot like starting and running a startup. So in what ways has your experience felt like this? Well, I'll say I've never started a startup. But yeah. I will tell you that the podcast, to the extent I know how a startup works, the podcast is 100% a, you know, uh, quickly brought to market product. I, I don't want to get too far from my own <laughs> vocabulary as a legal writing professor, but I'll, I'll stay there. Um, it really is uh, creating something and creating something that requires two things. It requires content and it requires people to listen to the content. Mm -hmm. And there's like a classic chicken and egg problem with all content, which is uh, you have to create good content to make people want to listen, but you have to have ears to listen to that content in the first place. And so I have had to learn and treat this kind of like a business mm -hmm. um, where I want to make sure people are interested and still listening. 
And because frankly, I mean, I have a couple of little sponsorships on the side and I, I do have an editor um, now, but it's mostly been a largely unpaid side hustle for me. So as a result, um, if people stop listening, I would probably stop publishing, not because it was bad, but because I had reached sort of the peak of the project mm. and I could use my energy for another project. Uh, but the reality is, um, I think there is still demand and yeah. I still have stories to tell. And so I'm just going to keep telling them until uh, I don't have the energy to or somebody else takes up that mantle. But for now, um, that's how I see it like a business. The other way I see it like a startup is I've had to learn a lot about marketing and the internet. Um, yeah. One of the coolest parts about the internet is basically you can find a community of like-minded individuals uh, anywhere, no matter how big or small your niche is. Oh, yes. But you have to go find them, right? I do actually think a little, I think about it a little bit like I think about legal writing. Like the mm. first thing you do when you get a new legal writing assignment is figure out what is the purpose of the document and who is the audience. And I try to see that with my podcast all the time. What is the purpose of this episode and who is my audience and how can I go find them? Um, and I've had to put myself out there to do that. And, you know, some people I meet and they're like, oh man, you're like all on Twitter and LinkedIn and you know, and you're constantly talking about how great your podcast is. It, it, that's not me. Like, that's really not me yes. as a person. Uh, it's it's the way, it's the path of creating a brand to connect these stories to listeners. And frankly, I've made a ton of friends. I've gotten such great, both personal and professional opportunities as a result. But I've had to put myself out there and and learn a little bit about that marketing. Oh, I love that. And I, I'm, I'm so glad you talked a little bit about um the need to overcome maybe some self-doubt and yes. fear of putting yourself out there. Because I think ultimately for me, the thing that I'm most happy and proud of is just overcoming that fear initially and trusting in the conviction behind, behind this project. So thank you for sharing that. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's such a great way of putting it, that, that fear. Um, you know, we talked a little bit about earlier about risk-averse lawyers and law students, and it's easy to not put yourself out there but I took a bet and I, and I recommend other people take this bet that in the 21st century, the most successful, fulfilled people are going to be people who put themselves out there and are open about who they are uh, and build, for lack of a better word, like a personal brand um, because it allows you to connect with the people that you really were born to connect with. And Great. yeah, it's, it, it really is such an amazing opportunity. That's awesome. And I definitely want to go there, but Jonah, before I do, yes. you're speaking with a lot of benefit of perspective now because you've been through this process. Sure. But I would like to go back to the beginning because our first episode in our first season was called Birth of an Idea, which was an episode about company formations. And I realized then that that first episode was also the birth of this podcast. Love that. So I'd like to ask you about your first episode, right? <laughs> what, what was your internal dialogue like when you were starting to put the pieces together? Like what was going on in the head? So funny. I haven't thought about that moment in a really long time, but it's such mm -hmm. a great question. And frankly, it's one that if you're listening, ask yourself, what are those birth moments in your own personal and professional <laughs> career? Because they provide so much perspective. Um, you know, I started this podcast with a tweet. Mm. I didn't have a guest. I didn't have a website. I didn't have a microphone. I didn't know how to podcast. Um, all I did was say, I am starting a podcast. It's called How I Lawyer, uh, which was sort of a, uh, I sort of stole the idea from How I Built This, which is a Guy Raz podcast. Um, and I said, on top of that, I'm going to publish 50 episodes in 2021. Wow. 
I had no idea what that meant. I, I literally had no idea. So like, I'm a big believer in setting audacious goals because that's the only way you can accomplish audacious things. That was too audacious. That was not smart on my part, but it did inspire me to sort of keep working and building in public, which is something that I think is becoming more and more common for lawyers and non-lawyers alike. And I wanted to build this podcast in public, but I had to like learn how to you know, get a distributor and I had to learn how to edit and I had to learn how to do lots of skills in order to accomplish this goal. And then I had to find guests. And frankly, that's where um, I was really lucky. I had been on sort of on social media, specifically on law Twitter for about a year plus mm -hmm. before that. And I had made some, you know, friendships is maybe too strong a word, but some professional connections through that. And I went to that, that network and I went to individuals and I said, Hey, I'm starting this. I don't totally know what I'm doing. I don't totally know what I'm going to ask you, but would you be willing to sort of be my Guinea pig? So I went to my personal and professional network. Um, and I just got started. And yeah. I think that's also a really good reminder for so many things is if you wait till you're ready, you've waited too long. Yes. Um, I tell that to my first year legal writers. Like if you say, I can't write a brief yet because I don't know how to write a brief. It's sort of like, well, how are you going to know if you don't start? The example mm -hmm. I give on my podcast all the time is, you know, you never want to know that a pilot is landing a plane for the first time if you're on the plane, but every pilot landed a plane for the first time and they were fine. And so ultimately I just wanted to get started. So I interviewed uh, two friends, uh, Andrea Stagg, who was then at Barnard College as a as a uh, university lawyer, which I thought would be an interesting way to start, uh, and Rafi Malconian, who I had did not know, but is very very active and very very big on uh, appellate Twitter, on law Twitter, mm. and I asked them if they would be my guinea pigs, and they said yes, and that's how it all got started. That is so awesome, and you know what? Today you've already produced over 110 episodes, inching ever closer to 200 listens, or even surpass it at this point. But when you were storyboarding your first episode, what did you think success would look like? And, you know, I guess how have you surpassed your original expectations? Have they changed at all? Right. And, and this is why I uh, should never be uh, on a podcast where the episode is about how to start a business because <laughs> I did not have a great, I, you know, I didn't, I, I told you I'm big on process and planning, but I don't think I had a clear version of success. Um, frankly, the, my version of success was I'm going to do 50 episodes in 2021. So I set myself up with a uh, a leading indicator goal. And what I mean by that was I picked a goal that if I just hit every single week, by the end of the year, I would have hit my goal. I didn't know what that meant in terms of like downloads or what it would do for my professional life or my personal mm -hmm. life or my academic life. Um, you know, I, I'll be honest, I didn't ask my employer. I consider this part of like my scholarly pursuits as well in the practice of law. And so I, I went with it to see what happens. Um, and so I didn't have a great vision of success and I've been rethinking what that means for this particular mm -hmm. project at a pretty regular clip and trying to sort of course correct and move 10 degrees here, 20 degrees there in order to trying to keep being successful. Mm. I'll tell you what, in, in keeping with our theme on, on startups and founders, uh, you know, so every founder experiences high and lows, right? So I'd love to hear about them, uh, some of them on your journey. Well, what were some of the highs, what were some of the lows, the things you didn't expect, challenges you had to overcome? Yeah, the, the lows I'll start with. Um, the lows were I did not realize what it takes to edit a podcast. And I am very <laughs> lucky that, thankfully, um, I am a long-term technology early adopter. I love technology. I've loved technology since I was a kid. 
Um, I'm in the generation that was uh, in elementary school and most of us first got the internet in our homes. Um, I'm the generation that went to college before Wi-Fi and graduated college with Wi-Fi. Um, and the reality is the the underlying technology for podcasting is actually quite old. Uh, RSS feeds, it goes way back to the blogging industry. Um, but the technology that allows you to, uh, as a user, edit audio easily is pretty new. And so you know, if I had not been able to find technological ways to edit my episodes, I would not have got past episode five. Um, I have actually heard that most podcasts do not like some high percentage. I don't know exactly what it is, but more than 50% of podcasts never get past episode three. Really? Um, wow. And because people have this great idea and they start and they, and they forget that there are those failures early on and you're learning how to do it. And every single episode in some ways gets easier because you have a process and you know what to ask and you become more comfortable. I had to get used to listening to my own voice. Um, and I will tell you, I've had guests who are literally at the top of their legal career who have said to me, I think I might ask you not to publish this because I can't imagine my voice being out in the world. Uh, when you hear your voice every week on repeat mm -hmm. while you're editing for three hours, you, you sort of lose, you're desensitized to that. And mm -hmm. so those were the challenges. Um, the victories for me were hearing from actual listeners that it impacted their personal and professional life. And I would have, I don't know that I would have guessed at how meaningful that is to me when I get, I mean, I've had several people find jobs through the podcast, like they've listened to somebody and either they've reached out to that person or to someone in, in, in the same industry. I've had people write me and tell me they've decided to go to law school because they started listening. Wonderful. Um, I've had people uh, say, you know, I was a big law lawyer and I wanted to find a way to use my law degree to go work in the public interest. And I wasn't sure how to make that move. And I listened to some of your episodes and I now have a plan. Um, the power of that is just absolutely incredible. And it, it really drives me. It energizes me. It gets me up in the morning and it makes me decide that I'm, I'm not stopping this podcast anytime soon. Oh, that is so wonderful. Much like we've discussed earlier, it's just you're giving so many people the benefit of multiple perspectives to inform their trajectories. So, and, and you talk about how energized you are. So I'd love to ask about this. How has your relationship to your work changed today <laughs> compared to when you were a big law lawyer or even as a teacher, right? I'm lucky. I get to do what I love to do. Um, and I get to do what I think I'm pretty good at. And those are two really different things. And this is what I recommend to all of my students. If you love what you do, but you're not, it doesn't suit your natural skill sets or your natural day-to-day -day life, um, it's going to feel a lot less fulfilling. Mm -hmm. If by contrast, you find something that, that, fits your skill sets really well and fits your lifestyle goals really well, but you don't find it interesting, that's also not going to be as fulfilling and successful. And I liked being a big law lawyer. I love being a law professor, specifically teaching legal writing. The podcast I just see as an extension of that. I get to connect with other people about what it means to be a lawyer and what it means to be a member of our profession. And mm -hmm. I get the privilege of doing that every single day. Now, are there days that I don't love my job or jobs? Sure. Are there days 
uh, where I miss some of the perks and excitement of my prior life as a litigator? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, but my relationship to my work has changed only in the sense that I do find my work incredibly fulfilling. And I should add, I am very lucky and privileged to be able to do that, to have the financial stability to have to do that, to have the partner that I have that that facilitates me doing that. Um, to have the upbringing that I have. Not everybody has the same starting place, um, but the starting place that I had allowed me to build skills and experiences. And and now I'm just trying to to live that life to the best I can. Oh, that's awesome. Thank you for sharing that. And I think also a great framework here to to find a way to intersect what it is that you'd love to do with also what you're good at doing, right? Yeah. I mean, let me tell you, like I've been thinking a ton about this and there's this really great, um, there's a bunch of different ways of framing this. Like I'm not the only one who talks about this. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I've been toying with this as a mental model of sort of three E's find where you have expertise, find where you have experience and find what energizes you. So mm-hmm. expertise, experience, and energize. And the great part about it is for all three of those, those can change over time. So sometimes you have expertise because you're naturally good at it. Like some people are just naturally good public speakers or naturally good writers. But even if you're not, if you want to build that expertise and you're committed to it, you can. Experience, and I'm not talking about legal experience. I'm talking about like, what do, what do you, what are you interested in, right? I'm lucky that my experience as a child in a technological age made me in the perfect position to be comfortable with consumer technology, but not consumed by it. I'm just lucky Mm -hmm. that that's the day that I was born in America at the right time. And what energizes you could be different things for different people, right? What wakes you up in the morning and gets you excited, right? Find the thing that everybody else thinks is kind of boring. And for you, you sort of look at it and you're like, well, yeah, it's a little nerdy, but I actually kind of like it. Those are the those are the places. If you can find the sweet spot of two or even all three of expertise, experience, and energize, I think success and fulfillment are not far away. Wow. Okay. So expertise, experience, and energy can change over time. If you can get two out of three, great. If you can get three out of three. You're in the you're in the sweet spot. Yeah, I'm still workshopping it, but that's sort of where <laughs> that's sort of where I am right now is playing with that framework. Um, because look, and even if you have all three, now you need to find somebody who's going to pay you to do all three. So it's not like a perfect, you know, perfect circle. But I do think too many people in our profession try to do things that don't naturally suit them. Try to do things that they don't yet have the experience to do, or try to do things for which they do not have. A motivation and everybody's motivation is different. I mean, if what energizes you is uh, making a salary so that you can help your family, mm. let that energize you, right? Like, I'm not judging what energizes you or versus what energizes me. Um, but those three things, I think, really, when you are intentional about them, you are setting yourself up for greater success than sort of just floating in the morass. Oh, I love it. It's such a great internal rubric. And a great, a great jumping off point for our next segment, sure. Advice for Law Students. Jonah, you've interviewed over 130 lawyers. And what I think about a lot as someone who has produced this podcast is the fact that, you know, you've been the common denominator, right? In, throughout all these interactions. And I know that every episode has required thoughtful storyboarding, creative development, editing, and post-episode promotion. So all that is to say is I know you've internalized a lot of these things that your guests tell you. And you know, many of our listeners are law students. They're in the sure. heart of big law recruitment. They're presently in summer associate gigs, or they're preparing to become lawyers. 
What are the major lessons you're going to impart to like the next generation of lawyers? Oh, thanks, man. I appreciate the kindness of of, of the framing because you understand how hard all those pieces are <laughs> as well. Um, you know, I've learned a lot. I've learned so much more than than I thought I ever could about what it means to be a professional, not even be a lawyer. I mean, yes, I interview only lawyers, but to be a professional, um, I've learned so much. And frankly, the things that I learn may be different than what my audience learns because right there in a different space than me. Um, but a couple stand out. Um, the first, and I, I say this a lot, is careers don't make sense going forwards. They only make sense going backwards. Um, wow. And that's sort of a meditation on a, a Steve Jobs quote that I, I that you can look up. I won't share because I don't want to mess it up. But basically this idea that, you know, everybody has a plan, right? Lawyers as planners. Like I, I, I remember even as a kid, I would tell my parents like by 40, I want to do X. I was a huge nerd. <laughs> like I thought the way to do this was to figure out like, what is the next door and how am I going to get to, you know, to, to that place? And what I have heard time and time and time and time again is no matter how much planning goes in on the front end, when you look backwards, it's some unplanned moment that changed your life, especially mm -hmm. your professional life. And so hearing that, I hope, lowers the stress and the pressure for everyone of feeling like I have to find success today. Instead, build expertise, experience, find what energizes you so that when the next opportunity arises, it will be there. Take some examples mm. from my show. Um, I interviewed Kirk Nara, who's a, a very important partner at Wilmer Hale who does cybersecurity and data security. He talks about how he made partner at a big law firm, not in data security and cybersecurity because those things frankly didn't exist when he was making partner. He was an insurance lawyer. He worked with hospitals. And it just so happened that because he worked with hospitals when HIPAA came out, right, he had to learn about what it meant to be to do privacy on the ground floor. And now he is probably like in many ways the dean of that community. If he had said from the beginning, I want to be a data privacy lawyer, there'd be no way for him to do that because that those words didn't even exist when he was in law school. But instead, he built expertise, experience, and he figured out what he was energized by in a way that when that opportunity presented itself, he was ready for it. And he was more mm. ready than everybody else. He had that uh, competitive advantage. And so don't stress so much about making the perfect plan. Figure out what is the next stage? What is the next door? What can I gain from whatever I'm doing right now, whether I like it or not? And I've talked to people who are now very happy in the law, who had to go through a phase where they were very unhappy with their professional life. Um, and just don't stress so much about that. Um, I think I love LinkedIn because I love the fact that we live in a generation where if you want to find anybody's, uh, career, I, I like call it career mapping. Like if you want to see anybody's career map or resume, you can do that for free at scale from the, like from your smartphone. Yes. Um, but the one, one negative of that is I think sometimes people think all the pieces fit together. And when you actually talk to those people the pieces fit together a lot less clearly than you thought. Oh, that's so good. So that's, that, that's you know, one that I hear a, a ton. I end every episode by asking for a piece of advice. And I've recently sort of gone back and said, looked at what, what are some of the common themes there? Um, one common theme is the importance of curiosity in the life of a lawyer. 
Uh, the law doesn't always change or doesn't change very often, but your relationship with the facts and creating, figuring out how new facts connect to old law is what makes some of the strongest lawyers. Wow. Um, and I guess the other one I hear a lot, and I think this is really important for people like you who are sort of going out into the world right now, um, is that we all make mistakes. The number of top lawyers I've heard who have said, don't worry about making mistakes. Instead, worry about how you respond to those mistakes. Mm. That's a common theme that, frankly, I don't think I would have picked out in advance. Um, but we all make mistakes. That's We're yeah. humans, right? We talked about this a couple times on this episode. Like We're human beings, and we live in a profession where uh, we want to practice excellence at all times, but excellence does not mean never making a mistake. Uh, what it does mean is when you make a mistake, it's owning up to it. It's not hiding it, right? Where mm. you're not a kid who can sort of like sweep it under the rug. It's going to that person who's ahead of you and saying, look, I missed this deadline or I missed this opportunity or I you know, made this argument when I should have made this argument how, what, what can I do to fix it? Most of the things that happen in law can be fixed, right? What often can't be fixed is the cover up. Mm. <laughs> and so as a young junior lawyer, I think the number of people that have said it, I just think it's really important to remember that mistakes happen, but you should judge yourself, not necessarily by the mistake, but judge yourself on one, how you responded to that mistake. And two, what did you add to your process to avoid that mistake in the future? Mm, okay, so let me see if I can remember all of them. <laughs> so recognize and expect that mistakes can happen, but what matters is how you respond to them. That's one. Stay curious because, you know, you never know what's going to happen next, right? Yes. And finally, you know, so careers make sense only backwards. Yes. Right? It's, it's sort of like, I guess, in those moments where stay faithful to what's in front of you because you'll never know what will happen as you step into your destiny one day and the things that you want to do. I, I, couldn't, I couldn't have said it better myself, Ben. I think really those... Those realities really help. And even if you know what you want to do, mm. just be open. Be open to let the world happen around you. And um, you know, one of the things I like to tell young lawyers and, and law students is to optimize for serendipity. And what I and that's not my term. No. That, that that's you know a term out there. Um, but what I mean by that is the more opportunities that you are a part of, the more potential life-changing moments you can be a part of. And that includes the people you spend time with, that includes the people you show kindness and empathy to, that includes that terrible deposition that you had to take in the, in the middle of the country the week of your birthday, um, because it opens yourself up to that opportunity or that moment when somebody looks around the room and says, hey, does anybody know? Mm. And if you can increase whatever <laughs> the, the answers to that are in your own life, I think you'll be well served. Oh, that is so interesting. So I guess in another way, it's like, don't be afraid to add uh, opportunities and take on tasks that don't necessarily fit into the narrative that you think you're supposed to be on. A hundred percent. I mean, look, use my podcast and your podcast as an mm -hmm. example. Like I had goals when I started it. I did not know that I was going to change people's lives. I did not know that my podcast was going to be used in law school classrooms across the country. I did not know that I was going to get to be on this podcast and meet you. I did not know that I was going to get to meet Brian Potts, who yeah. later asked me to join the board of the Legal Mentor Network. Um, I didn't know any of those things when I started, but I, I kept an openness and a growth mindset and a willingness to try new things in order to optimize for serendipity. And I think 
a lot of that is people. Like, you know, one of the other things that I talk a lot about on my show is networking, because I think networking gets a really bad rap. Like, it just is like people standing, milling around a, a hotel ballroom with like cheap Chardonnay. Like, that's not, in my view, how to have a fulfilling uh, legal network for yourself. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm a big believer that every single person you meet, you who you can help can also potentially help you. You just don't know which one is going to be helpful and which one you're going to be helpful to. So the more often you optimize relationship and serendipity and build a community, not just some people you meet randomly drinking, you know, uh, sparkling water or cheap Chardonnay, but really build a community. Um, there's a professional development aspect to that as well. Oh, that's so good. And I, I definitely want to reinforce that because for many of our guests, they all, they, they give a lot of advice, but they virtually all say the same thing which is that I had no idea I would be doing what I'm doing today, but one thing always leads to another. So don't be afraid to take on that task. And you know, that takes a lot of pressure of, of planning off our shoulders, thinking that we need to have all of it figured out before we even start. A hundred percent. Couldn't agree more. So, so now that I, I am personally at the end of 3L, actually law school is now over and I feel like a tourist in this building now. <laughs> <laughs> but what should I be worrying about as a you know, soon-to-be lawyer in this profession? And what do I not have to worry about? Yeah, we're worriers by by nature, I think, and I'm not sure law school does a great job. Um, I've had some great episodes with people focused on, you know, the mental health space, and especially for lawyers. And I think, you know, there are there are real techniques and there are real experts out there, and I am not one of them on sort of how to worry less. But I think it's really important. So, um, you know, for example, I've had on my podcast um, Heidi Brown uh, from Brooklyn Law. Uh, I recently had uh, Jordana Confino, who's sort of an expert in this area. But all that aside. Um, the things you should worry less about, in my view, early in your career are um, getting responsibility from day one uh, mm. and worry less about doing more things, worry less about quantity and more about quality. Um, now, that may seem like it goes against my other advice to optimize for serendipity and build a network and all of those things. But ultimately, careers are long. But that first year feels like you want to hit the ground running and you want to be, you know, the senior partner or you want to be the head of that nonprofit. Um, and, you know, I, I one of the phrases that I like to say a lot on my show is that like law is a profession of passed down wisdom and you need to be around enough wisdom for enough time for it to get passed down. Um, in my own career, what I found is that the first year of doing anything in the law feels really um, dissatisfying, short, not successful. And if you stop after that first year because of that, as a result, you've lost that opportunity for the second and third year where opportunities start flowing, things start clicking. And so worry less about trying to, you know, hit the ground running and worry more, frankly, about doing whatever it is you're doing to the best of your ability. Um, because it'll take time to learn, have that growth mindset, be open to that task. What's the worst that could happen? I tell my students all the time, like take small bets. If you're on a case that you hate with a partner who you hate, uh, for a client that you hate, at the end of the day, if you do that for six months, and at the end of the day, you get through that six months and you say, I never want to work for that partner again work in this subject area again, work for that client again, at least you've learned something from that experience, mm. right? Fool me twice. If you then go back to that well, there's a problem, that's on you, right? <laughs> but ultimately, the best thing you can learn from an experience is that you wanna do that for the rest of your life. The next best thing and close second is that you never wanna do it again. 
And so optimize for not having to do it again um, and, and keeping that growth mindset. So that's what I would focus on. And I would worry less on feeling like, oh, I really own this. I'm going to be the best at this. I'm going to go build a book of business my first year out. You know, all of those things will come and they'll come a lot faster than you think, but trust in the process. Oh, I love that. So be patient, stay faithful because, you know, everything builds on each other. Yes, absolutely. So final question, Jonah. Sure. Something I think about a lot now is what does success look like for you? How do you know that you've made it? I mean, this is such an incredible question, Ben, and is such a testament to the, this podcast and the way you've been thinking about the, the seasons that you've worked on. Um, because success is, is, the, is the white whale that we're all searching for every single day. Like that's what we're looking for. I mean, look, one of my core identities, as I think I started with, is, is being a parent. And I ask myself this question a lot. Like, what does success look like as a parent, as a lawyer, as a professor, as a son, uh, as a member of my community? Um, and I will tell you, and I have been incredibly blessed and lucky. And, you know, we talk a lot, <laughs> a lot on my podcast about sometimes it's better to be lucky than good and be in the right place. And I've been in the right place more times than I deserve to be. Um, but even in those moments, you always think, well, when I do X, I will have been successful, right? Mm. So when I get that summer job at that firm I loved, when I get that judicial clerkship, when I get to 200,000 downloads on my podcast, like nor that's how I think because that's how people think. Ultimately, the long answer to your short question on success for me, and again, everybody needs to define what it is for them. I define success not as in terms of made it, but in mm -hmm. terms of the process of did I do what I set out to do? So that's part of it. And the second part of it is, did what I set out to do help others amplify themselves? And I think that's what I love about the legal profession is that we are in the client business. And I don't mean client in the sort of like legal ethics sense that I write a lot mm -hmm. about in my scholarship, but you know, I just mean in the, in the business of we are working for other people and know who your client sort of small C is and try to make them find more success, right? Who is your audience? How can you make them be better, be stronger, get their goals? That's my North Star, right? And my client or my audience mm. um, is a little different academically and in my teaching and in my podcast, but ultimately is about the profession, which I yes. care just deeply about. And so success for me is helping other people find success in the profession. Um, but ultimately, at the end of the day, don't I don't think about I can't think about success as you made it because then it's the the classic joke about law school that it's a pie eating contest where the winner gets more pie, right? Yes. Instead, did you set out to do something that moved other people forward, and did you execute on what you set out to do? Wow, that is so good. So it's like fall in love with the journey and the process, provide value, and then the success will follow. Yeah. And, and it's not even that the success will follow. I mean, yes, I think often it will, but at the end of the day, like if I, if I set up my goal of create a podcast where you get 50 episodes in 2021 and I get to 45 or 50 episodes, that's success, right? I set mm -hmm. myself up for success because I defined it in terms that I had control over and aligned with my values, right? Love it. If I set success as make partner by 40, right? that's a lagging indicator that has a lot of things that I don't have control over. Yeah. And 
even if it's the right thing for me that energizes me and leverages my expertise and my experience, I don't have control over that. And so look, I'm, you know, 10, 15 years out of law school at this point. And so success may change over time, but that that's how I think about it is, is, is absolutely like fall in love with the process and uh, create success that you control. I love it. It's a constant work in progress. A hundred percent. That chasing of the white wheel. I love it. But Jonah, this was so wonderful. Such great parting words of wisdom for the end of our second season. Thank you so much for coming on. My pleasure. And and I'll just take um, both professorly and podcast uh, prerogative to say congratulations to you, Ben, on not just this season, but everything you've done with this podcast. Um, I don't think, I think people think podcasting is just like, you know, you wake up one day and you talk into a mic and somehow thousands of people listen. And, and I know from personal experience, that's not the case. Um, I am so inspired by the next generation of lawyers who are trying to make our profession more transparent, uh, more successful, more fulfilled, more diverse, all of those things. And you and this podcast have contributed to that. So um, I'll take my prerogative and give you some props as uh, as you move to the next stage in your life. And um, you've already optimized for serendipity. So I know success is coming. Thank you so much. I'm looking forward to our next conversation. Absolutely. Be well. Hi, listener. Thank you for listening to season two of the HLEP podcast, probably brought to you by Femic and Wes, Cooley, and Oric. My name is Ben Ho, and it's been a tremendous privilege to be your host. When I first started this project, I didn't know where it would lead, but the goal was always to help create greater commercial awareness about legal practice in the emerging companies and venture capital space through the resources and platform we have here at Harvard Law School. And here we are now, at the closing of this wonderful chapter, after two seasons and 25 episodes. I'd like to thank all our firm sponsors for making this podcast possible again, Femmican West, Cooley, and Oric. I'm grateful to every speaker who shared their time and thoughts with us. I'm also especially grateful for Joe Blim, our sound engineer, and all the friends, colleagues, and mentors who encouraged me to keep going with this project, far too many to name. And finally, a big thank you to all of you who have been listening along from the very beginning of season one. I hope you had as much fun listening along as I have had recording these episodes and learning from so many amazing speakers. My time here, both as a student and as your host has come to an end. If you'd like to stay in touch, please reach out to connect with me on LinkedIn. We're now making preparations for season three under the leadership of a new host. If you'd like to be a sponsor of our podcast, please reach out to me on LinkedIn or email us at hletpodcast at gmail.com. Until then, we wish you all the very best and look forward to seeing you again very soon. Thank you. This podcast is a production of the Harvard Law Entrepreneurship Project, an officially recognized Harvard Law School student organization. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of Harvard Law School or Harvard University.